Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. This is the fourth episode in a short series on the psychology of writing. We're looking at modes of thinking, helpful and unhelpful mental models we might be bringing to our craft and ways we might tweak them, make things a bit easier, stop the gears from grinding and just get everything to mesh a little more smoothly. Basically, the big question is, what are the stories we tell ourselves when we tell stories? So, in case you haven't listened to the previous episodes, I wrote to a bunch of authors who've been guests on the show before and asked them, what's the most unhelpful belief you have about writing? Which obviously elicited the most negative stuff, the blocks, the tricky feelings. I won't want you to think that this is absolutely representative of everyone's omnipresent attitudes to writing every second that they sit down at the desk. I was very deliberately going for the belief they hold on to, which is least useful, we might say least adaptive, when they're writing. What I'm hoping is that by sharing their experiences and reflecting on similar ways we might have thought about our own work, we can all become a bit more aware of distortions we bring to the page when we write. And maybe we can bring some of our assumptions a little bit closer to reality. Uh, as I said before, I'm under no misconception that I'm going to be performing one-hour miracle cures here and you will be completely expunged of all neurosis as a writer. But we don't have to have that kind of all-or-nothing thinking. We can simply say, in this discussion... Are we going to be growing a little? Are we going to be moving a little bit in the way towards greater happiness, greater efficiency, and maybe even a little bit better writing? And if the answer is yes, that is possible, then I think it's worthwhile. So, look, if the thought of positive thinking or anything that smacks of affirmations, etc., brings you out in the pox, then take heart. I'm not asking you to enjoy life or anything poncy like that but just looking to see if we can find ways to, at the very least, not egregiously lie to ourselves in a manner that achieves nothing except making us less happy while performing worse at creative tasks. That, to me, seems a perfectly reasonable, non-la-la, logical goal. So let's look at some more responses from authors when I ask the question, what's the most unhelpful belief you have about writing? This from Melissa Harrison, author of All Among the Barley. Quote, there's one about not being intellectual enough. That there's a tier of writers who are proper intellectuals and write things that are formally challenging and unique and groundbreaking. And I'll never do that because I'm not clever enough or original enough. End quote. And here's the response from Kirsty Logan, author of The Grace Keepers. Quote, you write fluffy stories about nothing, end quote. Now, without wanting to strip the nuance out of those two distinct and very personal beliefs, I'd suggest they both belong to the same family, that of, I am writing the wrong thing, and a second implied category, I am somehow inadequate, stroke, deficient. And just to demonstrate the scope of this particular brain weasel, here's an adjacent but clearly separate belief from Aliette de Bodard, quote, I think the one I struggle with most is the belief that all story is about conflict. I don't think it's true, but I keep running into my brain's preconception on the problem, end quote. So let's dive into this a bit, shall we? Uh, may I just 
say that this again is a feeling a belief that i've experienced myself in a variety of forms it's something i've told myself in a variety of ways i think it's quite telling actually that so far i've felt every single unhelpful belief that a writer has shared i don't know if that shows that they're all very common or that i'm supremely mean to myself when i write i expect actually those two possibilities aren't mutually exclusive when my full-time job was performance poetry i did i guess what you could call stand-up poetry i wrote stuff for performance i interspersed it with stories and jokes and that wasn't always trying to be funny mostly i was you know i was happy to be interesting or surprising or poignant or whatever you know to tell stories alongside the jokes but mainly what I was going for was making people laugh. And I enjoyed that. You know, it's a delight to make people laugh. I've been on stage and I've told jokes or sung silly songs that have had people laughing so much that tears have been coming out of their eyes. I've had people holding their stomachs or chest and literally holding a palm up to get me to stop because they're laughing so much they can't cope. That's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. I can tell you, anyone who imagines that we have to sort of lower ourselves in some way to do comedy, oh my gosh, it's such a wonderful feeling. Bringing genuine joy to other human beings, it, you just feel great. And look, in that job, role, whatever you want to call it, as a stand-up poet, I had all sorts of insecurities that had some basis in reality, sure, but on reflection also largely took place in the arena of my own head. Like, I'd go to stand-up nights where I was always the only poet on the bill, and I'd imagine everyone there saw me as this pretentious eccentric who wasn't a real stand-up right you know they'd be thinking why is he framing all these thoughts in verse why do some bits in his set have no punchlines why can't he just talk to us like normal people why can't he do gags does he think he's better than us like who does he think he is that was my imagined thought process for audience members and my fellow acts but then I'd go to poetry nights all right Tim you don't maybe you know stand up you don't feel at home what about poetry nights? But I'd go to poetry nights where I was the only guy who did jokes um, and I was playing the ukulele and, and rapping over backing tracks and stuff like that. And I'd actually learned my words rather than reading them out of a book. And I imagined people there at these, what I thought of in my head as being rather sophisticated artsy gigs, rolling their eyes and thinking, well, this isn't art, is it? This isn't intellectual. It's just a, a bit juvenile. He's not a real grown up. Now, I didn't think this, these things all the time at every gig. It wasn't some punishing soundtrack to my life that was always there. And there were a few events, actually, where I felt absolutely at home, where the mess and mixed media and silly slapdash, hello, hi, it's me, I'm here, we're here, let's do a thing and see what we can make right now in this moment, where all of that seemed not just non-weird, but actively welcomed and embraced. And, and I bet that there were some stand-up events I went to where the fact that I was doing something a bit different actually helped me stand out. And, you know, maybe some of the other acts thought, oh, I wish I had a gimmick like that. And maybe the same with the poetry events. Maybe some poets, rather than sneering at me or actually feeling god oh, he's really performing i feel a bit shabby here reading out of my book and not pulling on putting on silly voices or doing jokes you know those people who were just reading from their collections 
collections written from their heart with everything that they'd worked towards was in those poems feeling that they weren't real performers they didn't have the right to be up on stage because I was doing these big bombastic pieces with funny rhymes and laugh lines and stuff maybe they felt like oh this just seems like weird and self-indulgent what I'm doing you know all of us feeling mutually inadequate but for opposite reasons writing doesn't have rules but it does have norms and I'd say most of those norms are implicit people get very shirty actually when you come out with rules for writing and the chief reason I think we should pause before condemning people for offering or indeed wanting writing rules is that when you say you don't want any, you're lying. What you actually don't want are any explicit writing rules laid out by someone. What remains when we don't make those explicit, when we don't put out some and say this is what I want and don't want what remains is a whole host of powerful normative pressures enforced through the soft power of agents editors increasingly social media influencers like prominent authors award organizers reviewers book bloggers readers booksellers event organizers and people like me and sometimes those rules aren't spelt out but they're there hidden and if you cross one of those invisible tripwires, good fuck will you know about it. Everyone who comes on this show, right, as a guest, conforms to my idea of what an author should be. That's, there's no getting around that. We bring ideas about what an author looks like, how they behave, what they should write about, the medium in which they should be published, how they should feel about writing and what they should be prepared to talk about and not talk about. This whole raft of assumptions to any interaction we have with writing, whether our own or other people's, when you buy a book, you do this, right? You you have this whole network of ideas. And if you're not doing it consciously, explicitly, if you're thinking, well, Tim, I don't actually do that. Look, I'm sorry, but you are doing it unconsciously. How else could you possibly cope? There are literally millions of books for you to choose from at any given time. And if you didn't have a heuristic to winnow down that vast, unbearable acreage of choice into something manageable, into, you know, a few books rather than millions, you'd just sit stunned like Buridan's ass between two equally inviting stacks of books never reading anything. Does this look like something I previously enjoyed? Does the author look like my idea of what an author should be? Now, we can definitely put in place explicit conscious restrictions to try to counteract unconscious biases. Some readers make the decision, I'm going to read no white male authors this year. And, and I get why for some other people that feels like an unhelpful way of approaching it that it emphasizes difference and arbitrary categories and if anything it entrenches a sense of hard boundaries in literature that don't really exist and i especially get why don't get me wrong i especially understand as a white male author why as a white male author you might feel threatened got at you know somehow attacked it can, it can feel like an approach and i'm, I'm very irritating and it's easy to feel defensive when it seems to bring the assumption uh, of course because of who you are things have been easy for you and of course because of who you are you write in a certain way your contribution does not matter by virtue of an accident of your birth 
I get that and I understand that feeling and to an extent I can empathise with it because it's something I've felt. But you knew there was going to be a but and you certainly some of you hoped there was going to be a but. I, I think we make those kind of determinations of who is and isn't a quote-unquote real writer and what is and isn't a quote-unquote real story all the time unconsciously. And and we don't feel affronted by them. We don't go, oh, that's a really arbitrary way of doing it because we, we, we do them entirely intuitively. We just have this kind of like dowsing rod of what is and isn't a book or a good book. So sometimes it can be very, very instructive, right? And useful and perversely liberating to put in place some arbitrary constraint on your reading. It, it forces you out of old habits. Yes, it's arbitrary, but so is almost everything that you're bringing to your reading experience already and it helps you break away from norms you didn't even realize you were in hock to and it challenges your unconscious assumptions and it helps reacquaint you in some small splendid way with reality and it pushes you into territories and books you would never have read otherwise it's not really an exclusion we're making exclusions all the time where in our reading choices right because there are literally millions of books most of what we do as readers is exclude books from our inquiries so you can't go oh you're not going to read white male authors you're why are you just thinking of books you don't want to read we're doing that all the time my friend you can't get around that but what it can do, I think, you know, taken in a positive way and taken with charity and not making any assumptions about people who don't fall into the category you happen to be reading, right? That mental model, that intuitive sense of what a proper book looks and feels like, it breaks down a little bit when we do these things. I think that's liberating for anyone who tries it. And, and, and it is a continual process. And there are always new ways that you can refine your understanding. And don't get me wrong, I want to make it absolutely clear, this is not some kind of original sin we must repent for. It's not some shameful error that a few weak and greedy souls commit and that we must continually flagellate our way to a more perfect understanding of the world because of guilt and shame are... I am learning this. <laughs> I'm on the sharp end of learning this, but also I've read the literature. Guilt and shame are really, really poor motivators for radical behavioural change or even small behavioural change, quite frankly, and especially for the learning that true growth requires. They're, they're, they're both stress-producing behavioural inhibitors that do very little most of the time except induce human suffering and serve a retrograde punishing authoritarian instinct that we can really do without don't do that to yourself you're not making the world a better place you're not helping anyone and you're certainly not helping yourself you deserve better show me a reader without bias and i will show you a pillow with a crudely drawn face on it if you think you don't roll down the shutters sometimes just because of a book's cover or the title or the genre or the author's age gender sexuality ethnicity or politics you are in deep deep denial my friend we think oh well i'm experienced i can do basic pattern recognition i know what to expect here and indeed you apply an, such an arsenal of filters confirmation biases ideological lenses expectations assumptions about the author's intent and emotional reasoning 
to the experience that whatever you are looking at, unless some part of you values empathy and intellectual honesty above the comfort of confirming your worldview, whatever you're looking for in a book, you will find. Anything else will be rejected, filtered out. It will just bounce off. You have a mental doorman who knows what good data looks like. He's standing guard to make sure you're not swayed by all the billboards and political propaganda and bad advice of the world. And the moment something tries to get in that isn't backed up by the trove of data already inside your head that doesn't agree with your model of the world, this mental doorman decides, nope, that's a lie. And that idea, that new data is rejected. And oftentimes that's a pretty good rule of thumb, right? There are lots and lots of people who want to get inside your head and influence you and control you and make you see the world the way they do. Your life won't turn into a perpetual Mediterranean party full of sexy young people if you buy that new car. The fearful, prejudice-laden rage spewed by the cynical politician in their latest speech. You want some way of catching that assessing it, ascertaining that it's not true, it's not good for you and it's not good for the world and bouncing it back out onto the pavement. But your psychic bouncer is overzealous. He doesn't consult you directly every time someone tries to come in, but rather works off a set of rules that started being written up when you were first capable of reflexive thought. Look at your mental bouncer's guest list and the first entries are written in the shaky crayon of a three or four year old. Some of the early entries you might realise are in your mum or dad's handwriting. Some later ones might have been filled in by a partner you trusted. And most of it probably was meant to protect you. Most of the entries on this bouncer's list of ideas and thoughts to filter out, I hope, came out of love. So most of this is going on in the background, right? Most of this is filtering every single perception you have of the world. This cognitive filter is meeting the sense perceptions as they tried to come in. It's meeting higher order um, interpretations of those sense perceptions. It's meeting uh, memories that are coming uh, back into your conscious mind. And as they tried to come in and any conclusions that might be drawn from them and it either waves them through, rejects them, or alters them until they fit the dress code. And in that process, you lose so many potential sparks of growth, personal expansion, and liberation. I get it now with my novels, which aren't quite like anyone else's. I know that sounds like a humble brag. Uh, maybe it is. You know, part of me is proud, but I can feel, and actually in the previous episodes, the way I've talked about my own work, I can feel that little tinge of defensive resentment. Like, um, it's not just enough for me to be happy with my work, to be sort of pleased with it, to go, well done, Tim, that's great. But I'm like a little bit surly, you know, a bit expecting mockery or rejection. And, and, and I, I'm a little bit defiant about my work. And, and I think those elements are unnecessary and maybe not healthy. You know, it's not a great way to be constantly combatively shaking my fist at the world and say, well, I bloody like my books. It's okay, Tim, they're great. You've done very well. Well done. Because, like, I guess what I write is, like, literary fantasy. But just like with my stand-up poetry, these two genres that, in my head, don't fit together, I imagine that 
literary fiction readers sneer at the fantasy parts of my book and fantasy readers yawn at the literary parts, right? Thus, I can imagine myself derided both as pretentious and as pulp trash. What a mess! And maybe, just maybe, those prejudices aren't the outside worlds entirely. Maybe they're mine. Have I read fantasy and thought, this is pulp trash? Yes. Have I read literary fiction and thought, this is pretentious twaddle? Yes. Do I think that level of judgment, with quite a lot of irrational emotion behind it, is a kind, healthy, or in accordance with objective reality way of looking at things? No. So the place I really need to start in this problem is me. I'm capable of being very judgmental, very cynical and mean. That sometimes comes out in my critiques of work that listeners send into the show. I'm always joking, but I'm channeling a part of me that's quite, quite real. It's okay to enjoy or not enjoy a book. I, I'm often minded of the short song, It's Okay to not like things. It's okay, but don't be a dick about it. Because you don't need to add something about the author's intent or you're being angry or drawing some big ideologically driven conclusion about oh good you know like sometimes you don't like something or you bounced off something or you didn't understand it and you can actually whip up a load of people to support you by delivering a very very eloquent takedown of something oh a little bit of righteous fire and it just feels good and and people feel empowered and maybe if you didn't understand it or you didn't like it you don't feel so lonely you don't feel so cheated and you feel like you you, you feel accepted by a group and oh it just feels good oh i hated the thing oh. Oh, and, and it just you you gather a little snowball of, of hate around you and other people join in and you feel safe and understood and that your model of the world still holds if i've learned one thing over the past few decades and it's very possible i haven't it's that judgmentalism even if you're absolutely convinced it's in the service of some noble cause will always always boomerang round on you Irritable people, snappy people, critical people are always privately their own worst critics. You might not think so, they might not let you see that, but they really, really are, and they suffer terribly because of it. It's a maladaptive behaviour. I've been reading a lot of research uh, recently in a field of neuroscience concerned with error monitoring. That is parts of the brain we use to keep track of and respond to mistakes when we're performing a task. Error monitoring can create a lot of stress, which gets our old friend the endocrine system to kick in, pumping out hormones like cortisol, which, as you know, if you listen to the previous episodes, downregulate part of the brain associated with higher order cognition, language, divergent thinking, creativity and even pleasure. Because you don't need those things in a stressful situation, right? You need to be able to watch your environment. You need to move like shit off a shovel. You need to react fast. You don't need to um, revel in the beauty of uh, sunlight striking dew upon a leaf. But it does help us to detect mistakes quicker and respond to them faster. What increased error monitoring massively impairs, as it turns out, especially when it becomes 
chronic when it's something we're doing over and over more and more and every time we find a mistake we ramp it up a little bit it it, it, it can become this behavior that starts feeding on itself and when it becomes chronic it impedes our ability to plan for the future imagine alternative outcomes different options for dealing with a problem it impedes learning and it impedes neuroplasticity the ability of your brain to form new synaptic pathways new associations to strengthen old ones as hebs postulate so succinctly puts it what fires together wires together but not so much when we're stressed and not so much when we're error monitoring when we are diverting a a significant amount of our attention which is limited of our brain's processing power um, towards possible mistakes we might make in fact the only thing that really uh, starts to be strengthened when we're doing that is is the thickening of axions around places like the amygdala and the hippocampus wrapping those axions in myelin sheaths so the electrical impulses tra- travel faster and we can respond to perceived threats ever faster with ever more vehemence so we can uh, we can pull up uh, scary memories from the hippocampus quicker and faster and so we can activate that stress response faster and faster and faster and faster and harder other writers are proper proper intellectuals your stories are too fluffy real stories have conflict each of these is essentially a limitation imposed by error monitoring and pattern recognition we're getting that idea this kind of template of what a story or a writer is and then we're checking and checking and checking ourselves against it to make sure we do not stray from the past. Quality control scans your work in progress, checks it against existing models of success, squirreled away somewhere deep in your brain, then an alarm goes off. And the production line shuts down. Warning, warning, defect detected. And that mental model you're comparing it against may have been created by you when you were five, when you had no idea really about what an author was. But it's deep in there and it feels so familiar, cosy. It's just been there since ever, right? It just feels like it came with the creation of the world. It's so, so old, so of a piece with your experience of actual objective reality, if such a thing is possible, that my telling you now your image of success is nonsense, it's wrong, it's illusory, may make it intellectual sense. It's not like you can't parse that. It's not like you can't understand that. It's not like you can't follow every stage of my logic as I've explained it to you. But you believe what I'm saying to you in your heart and gut about as much as if I told you that you have only to step out your window and you will fly. Creative success can take so many forms and frankly creation and originality are by definition about bringing into being something that never existed before. Every book must feel like a mistake. Every story is a mutation. It was born from tradition, but unless it's simply a duplicate, an illuminated manuscript copied studiously by a cloistered monk, it must perforce also be a break from that tradition, a new start. There's no herd for it to hide amongst. It is a stark new thing, and thank God, let us all stop to gaze upon its majestic weirdness. 
Don't get me wrong, it can offer immense temporary comfort to feel like a bunny quotes real writer, end bunny quotes. You have the big stack of books, maybe you do a literary event and lots of people turn up and they watch you as somebody with a microphone asks you questions and you go, mm, yeah, so this is where I get my ideas from. And you do a signing at the end and there's an actual cue and you have a pen and you write your name and they say, can you sign this to my dad, to such and such is dad. Hope you enjoy this book. Signed, and then you do your little squiggle. Oh, I feel like a writer. Hand it over. Thank you. Next person. Oh, you just feel like a hermit crab backing into a new shell. Look at me. I merged with the archetype. Now, finally, I'm safe. But it's nonsense. It is bollocks, my friend. And, and in accepting it, you know, in that moment of safety, actually we send the message to everyone else writing that this is the one way to be. So even if it works in reducing our feelings of vulnerability, and I'm not actually convinced it does in the in the long run, I think a lot of things that are temporarily anxiolytic are so often long-term anxiogenic, they become addictive, they reinforce a need for safety, certainty, they can be actually deeply inhibiting. But even if it does help us in the short term, it also contributes to feelings of inadequacy in others, which I don't think is worth the cost, right? Because this isn't just about me or you. I want us to be happy, but I think we can do better than that. Uh, it's about us. You know, how can we create a space, an environment, an ecosystem where as many of us as possible can not just exist, but thrive? There's this idea that we live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world. One, dogs don't eat dogs, generally. That's not... That is a, that's a poor understanding of the dog hierarchy, right? But secondly, um, it's not even true of nature. There's this idea that survival of the fittest somehow implies there's some kind of like natural order that is this tremendously vi violent, ruthless pyramid, this hierarchy. Actually, if you look at most environments... In an ecosystem, unless there's a huge extinction event like a meteor or some disastrous oil spill coming in from the outside and destroying it, the number of non-zero-sum relationships uh, tends to increase until the ecosystem achieves peak biodiversity. So it's not always things eating things lower down the food chain. It is cooperative, co-evolutionary. Uh, relationships. And the reason I say this is just because I don't think that we have to always have this idea. We should be looking at ways we can make our success everyone else's success. The way that we can create success as a force multiplier for everyone involved in creation. That the, the, There shouldn't be a category of authors and a category of non-authors and never the twain shall meet. I'd love to blur that boundary. So anyone who wants to write something, even if they just do it once in their life, even if it's something they do for whisper it fun that it's available to anyone who wants to approach it to anyone who wants to get the benefits out of it to anyone who wants to experience the joy the change the um, intellectual challenge the emotional challenge the psychological benefits all of those things it should be available to everyone it shouldn't be just <laughs> it's not a lineage we're not the fucking Sith, right? Like we, It's not like one master to one pupil handing down this dark power. Fuck you. Like it's for everyone. And it explodes out into the world. And the 
more we can create an environment for that, the better. How can we create and contribute to a sense of being a writer that is a spacious territory, not a narrow tick box list? And I really do think we have to broaden the space, not to make room for some by kicking out others. That just turns it into a, a turf war. Our energy gets wasted on factional disputes instead of love and celebration and telling each other. And isn't this the point? Wonderful, varied, surprising stories. I've never felt like a grown up ever, much less a father. And at some point you have to ask, well, is this because I'm uniquely ill suited to this role or because my idea of what a grown up, what a daddy is and thinks and feels was largely assembled when I was five and I'm refusing to update it based on first hand data from the inside. You may have heard of the uh, no true Scotsman fallacy. So it basically goes, there's this very patriotic Scottish guy. He's reading the newspaper. And on the front page, the story is about a guy in Manchester committing a series of dreadful murders. And he shakes his head and says, no Scotsman would ever do such a thing. The next day he reads the paper and the story is about a series of dreadful murders committed by a guy in Falkirk. And this guy shakes his head and says, well, no true Scotsman would ever do such a thing. Now, this isn't a parable about the tribal hypocrisy of the Scots, but rather something that we all do, which is whenever we have a model of the world that we use to make predictions and something happens which defies that model, generally we prefer to modify our interpretation of the anomalous result so it fits the model rather than update our model. Uncertainty is anxiogenic. Threats to our models of reality are anxiogenic. They are troubling. They are stress producing. They just are like that. That's not an opinion. That is just the way it is as a human. And it's very difficult to update any schema by which you understand the world while you're feeling threatened, terrified. The moment that happens, learning, openness, that creativity, that divergent thinking that makes new connections possible shuts down because we do not want or need it in that situation. If we were sitting, you know, on a little wooden jetty by a lake in autumn, the afternoon sun golden on the still water, the smell of leaf smoke on the breeze, and I were to say to you, hey, I think deep down you know this, but you are a real writer. Your contribution is valuable and new, and just by showing up, you are changing the environment into which writers who come after will get to play. You make things better simply by following what you love and writing it down. Humans need storytellers. The storyteller is one of the basic units of a happy, functioning society, and, and you can't get it wrong because you are one. Look. Look down at your reflection. This is what a storyteller looks like. You've known it all along. Your only job is to tell the stories true. Your only responsibility is not to keep them locked inside you like a miser, but to open up the doors of your heart as if you were a dovecot and set them free. If we were in that place of peace and tranquility with the leaf smoke and the lake and the lake and the sunlight on water, and I guess if you trusted me a little bit, if you hadn't just been minding your own business when I sat down by you and started a monologue, 
you'd be much more likely to accept that truth that I just said, to let it in and store it deep inside of you. To shift your models a little bit, to accommodate it, to make deep change. Because if you want to make deep change, first it helps to calm ourselves down, quieten the alarms, drop the DEFCON level just a little bit, send the doorman on his lunch break and take yourself to a place of safety. And acknowledge why you might want to protect yourself from recognising your own validity, your authenticity, your value, your miraculous, unrepeatable wonder. I don't use those terms lightly either and I don't believe I speak with hyperbole you are those things you are you are you are and if when I say them you feel yourself bringing down the shutters a little bit turning turtle so they bounce off that's okay you're allowed to do that all I'm saying is you might like to reflect what you feel you have to lose by letting them in whether you're scared you're going to be a sucker by doing it whether you think that it it's preposterous or, or silly or it makes you big-headed, whether it will make you vulnerable or place you in danger. And I, I, when I say let them in, I, I don't mean thinking, oh, that would be nice if that were true. Or thinking, oh, that's a kind attitude to have. Or isn't that nice of Tim to say? But actually going, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. I remember I am the storyteller. I remember. I don't know, did someone once laugh at your ambitions? Did someone you love once warn you against the dangers of dreaming, of changing and growing? Is there someone you love who you're scared you'll leave behind for whom personal change or embracing of new things would feel maybe like a betrayal? Anything you want to hold on to, any preconception of the world or you or the way things are going to be that you want to keep, you can. I, I cannot prize that away from you. You have supreme control over that. All I'm suggesting is that if some of these strategies, if some of these internalised beliefs, if some of these shapes by which you understand the world no longer serve you, mightn't it be worth gently investigating what they are, where they come from, and if now, while circumstances have changed, you might like to choose to safely let them go. Perhaps this seems a bit hokey. That's okay. I'm not selling you a bill of goods here. If what you've been doing up until now has no room for improvement, stick with it. If not, and you'd enjoy a bit of change and you're open to the possibility... Why not see if you can take yourself to a place of calm safety, either in your mind or literally maybe through talking with a trusted friend while you have a cup of tea together. I wonder if you can just explore these things a little bit. Now, don't get me wrong, it, it can get emotional. I'm not trying to break you down here. Uh, I'm just saying from personal experience it can be hugely valuable. It can actually be some of the most valuable work you can do. Gosh, I really am turning into a hippie as I slide into middle age, aren't I? No, actually what I'm doing is becoming more comfortable about talking about my feelings, more comfortable with being vulnerable, more comfortable with 
our loving each other and me loving myself while we can because what's the point in playing it cool what's the point in constantly apologizing for feeling things and loving each other and appreciating each other and valuing each other honestly life is incredibly incredible it's sad it's scary it's unbearably beautiful and and we have no one to take care of us no one but all of us right next time i'll talk more about bottoms or something but in the meantime i hope something we've discussed in this series so far has helped has shifted something for you encouraged you lightened your load maybe given you a new perspective or aided you as you grow as a writer and a person it really is a privilege for me to do this podcast I, i'm not just saying that I, I i feel it more and more and i'm so grateful that you've been so generous with your time as to listen to me and i will always strive to reward your generosity by being as honest and helpful as i can right until next time here's to be here's to being doughy and pliable here's to growth have a wonderful week of writing. <laughs>